You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Hi there, it's lovely to see you and Happy New Year. Bless you. I hope you had a great uh, Christmas, Christmas time. Uh, lots of family and friends and beach and I had the longest break I've had for years, which was fantastic and lots of family time. My daughter Becky here and three grandchildren, so uh, lovely to see them here. And also I had some friends, Meg and Tim and Ashley and Mitchell. Mitchell is my nephew, so it's a bit of a family occasion today. So welcome, special welcome to them, but welcome to everybody. Lovely to meet you all and uh, lovely to be here. I feel weirdly nervous given that I've preached here in this space, in this place, thousands, hundreds at least of times, but I feel a bit nervous today. That's a bit odd. Maybe it's because I'm wearing this thing, which feels a bit strange to me. Yeah, so uh, as Matt was saying, we're going to start a little series today on the Psalms. This week I'm going to do Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and then Dave will pick, pick it up from there on and do some more Psalms, just in the first section of the book of Psalms. In a few moments, I want you to have a bit of a flip through the book of Psalms. So if you didn't open it before, grab a Bible and open it. Just want you to sort of get your bearings in the book of Psalms. And today I want you to meet the blessed human being, the blessed person, the blessed man or woman who stands at the doorway of the Psalms. Um, Book of Psalms, a big book. We all know it there in the middle of the Bible. You'd think it'd be all about God, wouldn't you? And you'd think the first Psalm would get you right into the heart of God and what God is all about. How weird that that's not how the book of Psalms begins. It doesn't begin with God. It begins with a human being, a blessed human being, a blessed man or woman. So, Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the beginning of this new year. Thank you, Lord, that your heart for humanity is to bless, give good gifts, give the best of everything, the best kind of life, Thank you, Lord. That's your great, open, loving, fatherly heart. Come now by your Holy Spirit. Speak in us, with us, through us, amongst us. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in, uh, in, in August or September every year in the, U- in the U.S., in Nevada, there's a festival. It's called the Burning Man Festival. I wonder if you've heard about it. It's a kind of fringe arts Festival. It's kind of zany if you look it up. Um, their website says, Burning Man isn't your usual kind of event. It's a vibrant, participatory metropolis generated by its citizens. And at the climax of the event, a towering effigy of a human being is incinerated. That's the kind of final moment of the week-long festival. I can't help feeling it's some sort of acted-out parable of our culture you know, that's the, that's the kind of final climactic event is the destruction of a human being or at least the Im- image of one. So here in Psalm 1, we get not the destruction of a human being, but the presentation and the honoring of a human being. And I'll get back to that in just a few moments. But first, let's do that. Let's take a little flip through the book of Psalms. So if you just, just shuffle all the way through it, Um, taking a look at it, and I'm interested to hear from you what you observe there in the book of Psalms. A whole lot of different Psalms, 
Who can tell me how many there are in the book of Psalms? Say it again. Got it, got it, got it, Matt. Thank you. Was somebody saying that I couldn't quite hear it. Yeah, 150 Psalms. Although in some reckonings there's 149 or 151, so it's slightly varying. But there's 150 roughly. When they were written, well, you can see they're all slightly different to each other. All the same basic form, a song, a poem, a tiny little snatch of some sort of meditation on something about God and about worshipping him. Um, but each one of them different for a different place, a different time, different person, different situation, written over maybe a thousand years by many, many different hands. Who do you reckon put the numbers on them? Do you reckon they were written with the numbers on? Like, you know, somebody had a great sense of inspiration. They wrote a psalm and put the number on. Do you think that's how it worked? Probably not. Somebody, somewhere, sometime put the numbers on. 150 psalms. One, two, three, four, five. And then you, you notice as you flip through above quite a lot of the psalms, what are some of the little notations on top? Can somebody call out one or two of those? Tiny little, inst- yeah, Psalm of David, thanks for that. What else can you see? Psalm of, yeah, isn't that fantastic? For the director of music for pipes. Uh, and there are some musical instruments there. We don't know what they are. And we don't even know who they're for, but we can see that they're about worship. They're about, it's pretty much like being here at Harbour Side, isn't it? Here's a song to be played with guitar. And uh, who's our music director here at Harborside? I don't know. But here's a psalm. I wrote it this week. It's for the worship of God's people. And that's what the psalms are all the way through. But everywhere you look, you can see the hand of the people who put it together. So they were written at particular places and times. They were used by God's community. And at some point, somebody gathered them all together and numbered them all and gave instructions about how to use them. So the hand of the people who sort of compiled the Psalms is really evident as we look through it. And so it's no accident that Psalm 1 is where it is. It's not just a kind of coincidence that we just ended up with a kind of stray Psalm. It was deliberate to make the beginning of this song of worship, this book of worship, this hymn book of ancient Israel, to make it begin with a blessed human being. I find that exciting. (laughs) I hope you do. I find that really invigorating. We meet this amazing person. In Psalm 2, there's another person there, and that's Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. We'll come to that next week. For today, we're meeting the blessed human being of Psalm 1, and also a tree, a tree. There's an amazing tree, and we'll come to the tree in a little while. You'd think, wouldn't you, that the compilers of the Psalms would present a vision of God to get things started. But no, what we meet here is not God in his majesty, although the Psalms are full of that. We meet a mature human being, a man or a woman, and not just any man or woman, but a blessed man and a blessed woman. And we meet this wonderful tree Mature tree, fruitful tree, tree that's by a brook, by a source of water, a tree that can withstand the wind and the heat of Israel, 
This strong, wonderful tree, that's an Angophora, Sydney red gum, a strong, mature, solid tree representing this blessed human being who is strong and stable and successful and prosperous and fruitful. That's a beautiful image, isn't it, of a a blessed human being. So here at the doorway of the Psalms, we meet this wonderful human being who's like a tree. What I want to do now, though, is just reflect for a moment on a handicap that I think many of us have as we read the Psalms. And it goes like this. It's the way we automatically think about the relationship between God and us, between God and his creation. You see, we've got it. Many of us have a tendency to think that heaven and earth are completely separate from each other. That we live here on earth and heaven and God is far, far away. It's more than that because we think that heaven and earth are kind of inconsistent with each other. Like oil and water, they can never mix. That's what we've got as our baseline, a set of assumptions about God and about ourselves. And then on top of that, when we want to honor God and we do want to honor God, we want to lift him up. Because we think of him as being so separate and different and opposite, what happens is that in order to honor God, we must diminish human beings. And so it's like a seesaw. You know, the greater God is, the less we are. Now, I'm going to set a trap for you now. I'm warning you, I'm going to set a trap. Simple trap. You'll all fall into it for sure. God is perfect. Is God perfect? What do you think? God's perfect, yeah? And you and me, are we perfect? So we've got a perfect God and an imperfect humankind. We all agree on that. Well, then how can we relate to each other? Well, you folk, you've got an answer, right? It's the cross. God gave himself in his son for the forgiveness of sins, and so imperfect people can relate to a perfect God. But I wonder if you see what happened there. When I introduce the abstract idea of perfection, well, we all just automatically ascribe that to God. We're made that way. That's what we think. Perfection, sure, God is perfect. And you and me, of course we are imperfect. And see what we've done immediately, push God away. So that God becomes perfect and we are imperfect. And suddenly we've got this problem of God and humankind disconnected, separated, turned into opposites, pushed from one end of the universe to the other. So they've got nothing to do with each other. And then we have a gospel that, tries to resolve that problem. That's the trap. There's a trap there. If you think for a moment, just for 10 seconds about the biblical story, you can see that this whole instinct is just misguided. In the very beginning, we read, God made us. And you know how he did it? He made mud from the soil and with his own hands, he made us. Your face has got the fingerprints of God on it. And then, to make you a living being, he breathed his life into you. Have you ever had somebody try to breathe into you? That's pretty intimate, right? With his fingers, he made you. With his mouth, he breathed life. That's pretty close, isn't it? That's intimate and connected. And then when he chose his people and sent them in their journey in the wilderness, 
Did he stay at a distance watching that? He didn't. He, he made them make a tabernacle, like a tent, so he could dwell in, amongst them. The whole book of Leviticus is the problem of a God who wants to be too close. <laughs> and the temple, the same God has Solomon build a temple so that God could be with his people. And then he sends his son, Jesus, to be a human being just like you, just like me. That's God wanting to be close. And then he dies on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He rises from the dead, not a ghost, not a spirit to fly away to some other place, but a human being like us, risen from the dead. He sent into heaven, and from there he sends his spirit. Where is the spirit of God in the believer? Where? Inside. This is a God who wants to be close. This is a God who's not distant at the farthest end of the universe. This is a God who from beginning to end is with his people. The final scene in the book of Revelation is the great heavenly Jerusalem. Which direction is it going, up or down? Great heavenly Jerusalem, and a voice comes and says, Now the dwelling of God is where? With human beings. That's the biblical story. Genesis 1, Revelation 22, a God who wants to be with his people. So, God of the Bible is not distant abstraction. And to worship the God of the Bible does not require that human beings be crushed. Or diminished. The God of the Bible made men and women to know him. And it's when we know God, far from being crushed, we get honored, blessed. And that's why it's perfectly natural for the Psalms to begin, not with a God himself, but with a mature, admirable human being, with a blessed man. Let's look a bit deeper then at this blessed, tree-like person of the Psalms, of Psalm 1. What's their secret? What's the core of their blessedness? And can you and I, can we live this blessed sort of life? Is it possible for us to share the life of this blessed person? Now, I've stuck with the kind of framework of the blessed man. And I hope, ladies, don't, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings there, but I went with blessed one and blessed people and blessed person and blessed. I tried every possible way of saying it, and I came back with this kind of solid person. And so, you know, this is the word in Hebrew, it's ish. We have a word like that in English, ish. You know, it's like, what time did you get to work today? I'm nine-ish. You know, <laughs> how was Christmas today? How was Christmas with your family? It was good-ish. <laughs> Ish, 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 it's the Hebrew word for man, but it includes women, and so I stuck with man, but I'm going to flip some of the pronouns around in the middle, just to make it clear that this is men and women, men and women. Okay, so I hope that's okay. Okay, so verse 1, verse 1 of Psalm chapter 1. What kind of person is this blessed man, this blessed woman? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. It's a man, a human being, making moral choices, choosing who he will and will not associate with. 
So to grasp this, we probably need to begin to imagine an ancient village. Let's imagine a walled town, maybe a kilometer around. And inside the wall, there are hundreds of houses and a few larger buildings and narrow pathways between the houses, opening out to the area where the gates are, three or four gates, wider space, some shelter there. And in that shelter, maybe against the wall, some tables and some chairs. It's the place where people gather to do business. It's the place where people gather to gossip. It's the place where civic authorities come to conduct business, make announcements, make judgments. And so when this man walks to and fro in his village, passes through these common areas, there are groups of people there. And he has to choose, he has to decide who he will associate with who he'll walk with, who he will stand with, who he will sit with. He's choosing who to associate with. And the psalm describes this blessed man as somebody choosing not to walk alongside the wicked and not to stand with sinners and not to sit down with mockers. So he's conscientious. He's independently minded. He's thinking carefully about the choices he's making and he's strong. He's able to walk alone when he needs to and resist the temptation to become part of a group that he doesn't admire or agree with. Meet this man, the blessed man of someone. He's got an independent conscience and moral courage. Um, what do you think about the front of this building? Isn't that an unusual building there, that Besser block thing there at the front with all those angles and so forth. It's curious, isn't it? This building here was built in the 20s, but that building was built in the 60s. And there came a point where the church had to decide whether they'd build that front section there. And of course, most of the folk thought that it was going to be so up to date, so modern, and so like totally mid 20th century, you know. And, you know, just forward-looking and, you know, and all the forward-looking people of Mossman will just swarm, just swarm to here because of the glorious architecture there. But there was one person who was opposed to it. He was a really prominent member of this church back then. He was an ophthalmologist, Macquarie Street ophthalmologist, and he was very opposed. He argued against it. He tried to persuade everyone, who wants to look at a pile of Bessa bricks? I don't know what he argued, but he was against it, right? And he, he strongly opposed it. The meeting time came for a meeting. This is how Baptists do things. They have a motion before the floor of the meeting. And the motion was, we build a brand new front of the church. And everyone was in favor of it. And he stood up and opposed it. And the vote was taken and the decision was made that they would build that new building and they would set up a building fund to pay for it. He lost. Immediately the meeting was over. That man took his checkbook to the treasurer. Might have even been Kay, father, with a check to write the first check to pay for the beginning of that building. A man of independent conscience stood alone, stood against everybody, but then when the decision was taken, felt himself to have a responsibility to affirm what the body had decided upon. That's a person of moral courage, and that's the kind of person we meet here. Conscience, how do you go with conscience? Um, 
Overactive conscience, underactive conscience. We sort of fall into those two categories and we need a really healthy conscience. Your conscience should be your friend. It shouldn't always be your enemy. Some people got underactive consciences, you know, like, so when the people are moving in a certain direction, the crowd is going in a certain way, they want you to be part of it, but you know it's heading somewhere that you shouldn't really go with. Your conscience then kind of is feeble and it's not really registering and you just slide along and go with the crowd, do whatever it is everybody else is doing. Next day you're thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. That's your conscience talking to you. But at the time, it didn't really help you much. Underactive conscience. Conscience didn't help. Well, it's good to have a healthy conscience that goes, hey, 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 don't do that. Sometimes in business, people come to me and I set up 100 contracts every year. And they say to me, John, if we pay you cash, do we get a discount? And you know what they're inviting me to do? They're inviting me to collude with them to avoid tax, basically, to go into the corrupt black market. That's what they're asking me to do. And it's in my favor if I do that. I'll save 30% and they'll save 10%. And we collude together to avoid tax. My conscience has to click on at that point. And it does. It always does. Because I've done it hundreds of times. Because almost everyone asks. And my conscience goes, my, my, what I say is, if you want to pay me in cash, that's perfectly up to you. But if you want me to collude with you to break the law, no is the answer. And immediately people step back and change their mind. <laughs> so suddenly it just goes out of the stick picture. It goes out of the story. We don't talk about it again. It's like line under, gone, finished, done. Good, clear conscience helps. It really helps. Just know straight away what you think. And that's the best moment. Like at the beginning is the moment when your conscience can do what it needs to do. It's when you delay. It's when you delay. You know, you're on a diet and somebody says there's a chocolate cake in the fridge. It's the delay that gets you, <laughs> isn't it? It's like the longer you think about it, the more likely you are to do it, right? It's got to be right at the beginning, which means your conscience has to be fully formed. You have to have been there before and gone, no, I got that wrong before, but I'm going to get it right now. But you know what? There's people at the other end of this issue with poorly formed consciences or rather overactive, overzealous consciences. They love the Lord, they want to serve the Lord, but you know their conscience can only say to them, wrong, 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 wrong. That's all their conscience could ever do. And sometimes it seems to me that we sort of get it into our heads that that's the right way to approach God. I can only ever approach God with a damaged conscience. You don't have, that's not necessarily the case. If your conscience is working well, there should be times when you can approach the Lord with a strong sense that I'm in the right place. You know, your conscience should not only accuse you, it should sometimes excuse you. It should go, hey, in the circumstances, that was probably a reasonable thing to do. Sometimes it should commend you for what you did as well as condemn you for what you did. And if your conscience only ever accuses and condemns, that's not a healthy conscience. Think of the kind of human being that creates a person who feels, well, it's not far from that kind of conscience to a sense of self-hatred and self-loathing, is it? 
I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm always wrong, I'm never right. Mm. That's not a healthy place and that's not where this blessed person is. This blessed person knows what to do, knows what's right or wrong and does it. And our consciences should be like that, helping us to be and do the right thing, strengthening us as fully mature human beings. That's a lovely image then, isn't it, of somebody who just... When their conscience troubles them, well, they deal with it and it changes their lives. And then when it's changed their lives, they can be confident about themselves. That's a blessed person with a strong sense of moral courage. Here's the second thing in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. So here's a woman She loves the scriptures and she meditates on them. Here's the second thing the psalm tells us about this blessed person. She loves the scriptures and she takes them into her heart and her mind and she dwells on them. She treasures them. Um, This woman wouldn't have had the Bible such as we have, but she would have had the first five books, the Torah, Pentateuch, and maybe other writings we don't really know. But what we do know is that she delights in them. And, you know, from Psalm 19 where it talks about the, the law of the law being more, more precious than gold and a bit sweeter than honey. That's more than just something to stimulate your mind. That's something to love and cherish and take into yourself because it does you good. And she does so day and night. She's doing it all the time, all the hours of the day. This blessed woman has some of the scriptures at least, but what she has, she loves. She meditates on them, and the word there means she, she mumbles them. She, she, she's speaking them to herself. She's saying them over and over into her heart and into her life. And here is the stream of water that this tree stands by. This is the source of life for her. She's refreshed by it. I was supervising a young young girl preaching recently, and um, she was preaching about the Scriptures. And she got well into her message, and she was bringing it to a younger audience, people that she had cared for pastorally over many years. The voice started to strain and crack at a couple of points, pulled herself together and got all the way through. Afterwards, I gathered her in and I said, hey, what what were those tears about? And then the tears really came. And she said, I just want my people to know that God speaks to them out of the Scriptures. I wonder if you know that. Do you know that in your heart and in your life? That you read these pages of the scriptures and they speak to you. They shape you. They change you. They order you. I know it's a big book and there's a lot in it, right? And I've been preaching it for 40 years and I just feel like I'm scratching the surface. I hope that doesn't discourage you horribly. What I'm trying to say is there's so much here. There's life here. There's narrative. There's the presence of God in and through his scriptures. God made his scriptures deliberately. Like it's not like God is 
God could have done this communication thing a different way. He always intended to do it through a written word. And I'm just so glad that Harborside places such a value on this, as Matt was saying. And Dave has this strong sense of calling to be in the Scriptures. And many of you have come with the same expectation. We expect our preachers to get deep in the Scriptures. And I want to affirm that and encourage that and bless you in that. And now that Dave's not here, I want to encourage you to encourage him to go deep, go deep, go deep. You will be blessed by one of Dave's messages if he has 10 hours to prepare it. You'll be blessed. But if he has 20, yeah, you'll be more blessed. And I have, seri- I have messages that have taken me 200 hours to prepare. So there's the upper limit, right? <laughs> if you could send your pastor away for two weeks every year just to study the scriptures. And the reason for that is that God has more to say to his church. There's more in the scriptures here than we know of. We don't even know what we don't know. And so here's the other thing I want to encourage you. Go deep in the scriptures yourself. Get your preachers to go deep in. But beware, be ready for surprises. Be ready for surprises. The scriptures are not always saying what we think they are saying. And sometimes the first thing that comes to us is not the main thing. It's the thing that comes after 10 hours. In fact, it's the thing that comes after 10 or 20 years of meditating on a scripture. And you begin to go, I think that's what that's about. You're on the edge of something rich and wonderful and deep. So go as deep into it as you can. It will bless you. Two things then. A blessed person has a strong sense of moral courage and loves the scriptures But thirdly, he's righteous and fulfills his responsibilities. Verse 6, the blessed man is described as righteous. And it turns out that he's not a loner. He has his own community, the assembly of the righteous. Now, to understand righteousness, it's an ugly word in English. We've got to think about a person in an intense web of relationships. I, I described before this person walking through a town, kind of tight confined, little town, lots of people there. But now let's think about this person in a web of relationships. He's a, he's a father, a brother, a son, an uncle, an employer, a consumer, a producer. He's the member of a family, of a clan, of a tribe, of a nation. And every one of those relationships, there are duties and obligations that come upon him because of all of those relationships. And this person is a person who fulfills those responsibilities who conforms to the, the norms that his position demands. That's what righteousness is. Well, this blessed man then is righteousness, righteous, and he fulfills his responsibilities. I guess the image that comes to my mind is a fruitful tree. Uh, this tree that bears fruit in its season, it's reliable. It's always there at the right time. It comes good with the things that you need, but also it's a space to shade people and Animals and families and shelter them from the wind and from the sun. A beautiful image then of the tree symbolizing the righteous person. And this is another aspect of this man's blessedness. He belongs to a community and he plays a vital part in that community. And you know, this is such an important part of being a mature human being. 
Western culture is teaching us something different, however, which is that the essence of humanness is our power over other people and over the world, that we're really someone if we have money and influence, if we command attention, if we have some special kind of ability or success. And because we've come to believe that, we have to run our own personal public relations department and broad public broadcasting department, and we've got to push out the message that I'm really someone. I'm riding shotgun, and I'm really someone. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Doesn't even rhyme or nothing, but I'm someone. I'm someone, and I want you to know I'm someone, and I'm pushing that out. That's kind of what humanness has come to mean, and that's so different what righteousness is all about. One of the things I love about Christmas um, is, uh, is those great inflatable Santas. Don't, don't you love those? There, there he is. Yeah, they're great. Inf- they're just wonderful, aren't they? And what I love about them is how big they are and how vacuous they are and how empty they are and how pointless they are. And there they stand like some kind of great messianic figure in people's front yards. That's at the beginning of the day, right? Then at the end of the day, it's a different story, right? By the end of the day, there they are. They're just flat, just empty, just nothing. I love that. I really love that because I know a lot of people like that, overinflated much of the time, totally deflated some of the time. <laughs> And isn't that humanness? But it's also humanness when you think your life is all about power. When it's going good, you're the big Santa. And then a couple of things go wrong and suddenly you're the deflated Santa. You're empty. And that's what happens if you build your life on power. Shall I say something about Donald Trump at this point? I'll just leave it there, shall I? Because in any Christian group, you'll have some folk who think Donald Trump is the best thing that ever happened. But in my mind, the inflated, deflated Santa, well, there you have it. Yeah, so different to the biblical idea of righteousness, in which we use what God has given us for the benefit of other people. And we are blessed when we know that we offer what we offer is valuable and treasured and contributes to the welfare of the whole community. Like, children know this. You know, children want to help, right? They want to make a contribution. Um, They want to do stuff that helps. And we're all like that. If we feel that we've made a contribution, we feel blessed. And here is a paradox, a wonderful paradox You could think that all those responsibilities, you know, father and uncle and mother and sister and brother and citizen and employer and employee, all of those, and they all have responsibilities and I've got to fulfill them and I'm going to get crushed and swamped and shrunken and overwhelmed. Well, that's not what happens. If you are able to do the things that you are called to do, you feel like someone. You feel like you've achieved something. You feel like you matter. You feel like you have something to give. Strange paradox. And in fact, here's a weird thing. You become yourself. Those responsibilities don't crush you. They make you. They show you. They demonstrate you. You become the person God made you to be. 
I often think about pianos, you know, musicians. They have the, the music there in front of them, all the dots. Are they trapped? Are they trapped in this weird world, the little dots that they've got to duplicate every single little one of them, and if they don't, the sky will fall in? Is that what they look like when they're playing? It is when they're students, isn't it? Oh, get this right. That's a sharp. It's a flat. But they get it right. They work at it. They get good at it till in the end, they get so good at it that they soar. Yeah. So righteousness is not a trap. It's a means for becoming and contributing and giving and being blessed. And now we come just to the last, the last little section. Bless you guys. You're doing really well. Thank you for your patience and all those little people doing a great job. Here's the last thing I want to say about the blessed person. And we're in verses 4 to 6. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. The wind blows away. And therefore the wicked will not stand on the day of judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. And here's the last thing I want to say, is that the righteous woman, well, God knows her, and her future is secure. In this psalm, the righteous is contrasted with the wicked, and the righteous, of course, is that fantastic tree, solid, permanent, but the wicked are like chaff, and there's an image of, of, of a woman um, winnowing, winnowing. She's tipping the grain out. She's already crushed it so that the chaff, the husk, has been separated from the grain, and now she's dropping it into the wind. And you see that light stuff? It's just blowing away so that the good stuff drops to the ground. That's winnowing. The wicked are like that stuff that's blowing away, chaff, just lightweight, nothingness, just blowing away. The righteous, though, are solid. They fall to the ground. That's why in verse 4, the blessed woman will live on and she will prosper because she has a future. But the wicked, well, they'll get swept away. And in verse 5, the way of the wicked will perish, but the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. This is the first thing God does in the psalm. First thing God does in the whole book of Psalms, he watches over. And actually, it's not quite watches over, it's he knows He knows the way of the righteous. The Lord sees her. The Lord knows her. And for that reason, she has a future. She'll stand in the judgment. She'll take her place in the assembly of the righteous because God knows her and her future is secure. Um, How do you go when people come right up to you? I'm just choosing who can cope with this the best. (laughs) Um, some, some people don't want to be known. Have you seen that? They won't, they won't really meet you. They won't really look at you. I know, I know a woman who, when she talks to me, she, she always retreats behind my left shoulder so that talking to her in an open space is like doing this, trying to find her. I, I don't know what, what has happened in her life, but she doesn't want to present her face. Do you know I've known people who have attended this church in the past. They come early, they come late, they leave early so they can be invisible. So no one sees them, no one knows them. I know people who live in the kind of interstices of the city 
and no one really knows them. They just like little mice running from place to place. Nobody, they're not settled in any community. No one really knows them. That is a kind of hell, isn't it? To be not known. And then there's the other experience, and there are people who love to give you their face. You know that experience? Like, like children, you know, they just come right into your face. They want you to see them, and they want to look at you. Little Boston said to me the other day, Poppy, why is your face like that? <laughs> yeah, make it that what you will. I, so good looking, so, so bright and cheerful. I was... My son-in-law just interposed at that point to say, Boston, that's because Poppy is very old. <laughs> but he was looking at my face, trying to figure it out. The other day, I saw somebody I hadn't seen for a while. And uh, I could see her coming through the crowd, coming straight at me. She was sort of half a head taller than me. That's not hard to be half a head taller than me. So she was coming at me from above like this. And so I sort of zoomed up like this to greet her. And she put her hands on my face and said, I need to say something. Oh, gosh, okay. I need to apologize to you. Last time I saw you, I didn't say goodbye to you. (laughs) There it was. And then a kiss right in my face, right to me, for me. Isn't that lovely? Being known, being seen, being connected. This woman is known by God. It's the first thing he does in the psalm. He knows her. He's the foundation of blessedness because before we know God, well, he knows us. He knows us. He reveals himself to us. He reveals his face to us. That's why the blessing in number six, you know, the Lord bless you. Lord keep you. You know how it goes? The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his face on you and give you peace. There's the blessing of being known by God and of knowing God. Our knowledge of God, our experience of God rests on his willingness to let his face shine upon us. The Lord knows you. The Lord sees you. And for that reason, you exist. You are someone because he sees you and he knows you. And he wants to bless you. And in fact, he has blessed you in Abraham. He promised that he would bless all the nations in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in countless ways, day by day, he blesses you. He blesses us. Bless him. And so you and I, we are blessed men and women. I wonder then if you can receive that blessing. (laughs) If you can let God come face to face with you to bless you, to reassure you, to let you know that he sees you and he knows you and he loves you. God knows you and your future is secure in him. So these Psalms then start in a surprising way. Here at the gateway to the Psalms, we discover this quality human being, best kind of human being living the best kind of life. This is not the burning man of the Nevada desert. It's not the disappearing man or woman of some of our theology. God is so great, I've got to disappear 
Not the disappearing person, but the blessed person. Here at the gateway to the Psalms, we meet a blessed human being with moral courage, who loves the scriptures, lives up to their responsibilities, is known by God. And unlike the burning man, this person is not destroyed. Instead, honored, admired. Psalm is written to honor human beings who are made to know and serve God. It's about humanness. It's about what it means to be a human being, to know God and to be known by God. That's the beginning and the foundation of true humanness. I'll bless you guys. Um, having talked a lot about blessing, if anyone would like to be blessed, just a prayer and, and a blessing, I'd be loved, very glad to do that. Jesus, our Lord, was, of course, a truly human being. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. That's next week, so come along. Bring your friends. Bless you guys.